0: I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. This week, we get to talk about holiday music. My guest today releases his EP, It's a Snow Globe World, filled with original holiday songs by guest artists such as Rita Wilson, Karen Elson, Patty Griffin, and Sarah Buxton. Having won a couple of Grammys for his incredible collaborations with Casey Musgraves that have wowed us all, producer and songwriter, Daniel Tashian, joins me to discuss working with legends like T-Bone Burnett and Burt Bacharach, the impact of legendary holiday song composers like Vince Garaldi and Johnny Marks, the Grammy snub of Casey Musgraves' new album, Star-Crossed, from the country category, and his own unique path to success in following his very own compass. Coming up, my conversation with Daniel Tashian. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Nick, what's going on? Man, I'm really happy to have you and to have this conversation in the spirit of the season. Well, it's great to be here, and uh, yeah, it is the season. So you have a new, it's an EP, right, of Christmas songs called It's a Snow Globe World, and it's out today. Yeah, uh, thanks
1: for uh, having me on here to talk about snow globes and... uh, you know, anything else you want to talk about? But um yeah, I'm a Christmas guy, you know. I mean, um I pretty much um the day after Christmas I started counting down until next Christmas when I was a kid. So, you know, uh Christmas is my favorite. So there you go.
0: Is that part of being a uh a New England bred kid? I mean that it's has that type of impact? I think it has something to do with that. I mean, I just liked
1: everything about it. The maple syrup, the snow, the snow days. The Nat King Cole music, the, um, the gifts, I would go around a different grandparents house and get like three or four Christmases, you know, everybody had a tree and, you know, it was just the best thing ever still is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It it totally is. Um, I'm curious. Did you? Because I've seen some of your stuff where you've actually painted some of the artwork. Did you do that for this EP too?
1: The EP cover is uh, was painted by my wife, uh, Lillian Fish. She, um, she, I think she did that in markers, these like Copic markers, and then she added some snow and with paint, with acrylic paint. So yeah, she's a she's a real talented artist. I've got her. Um, if you are seeing the visual side of this, I've got her paintings in my studio here. That's a portrait of Karen Elson over my shoulder there. And that's, there's an album cover for one of my silver seas albums over there. So I got her artwork everywhere. I'm her, her biggest fan. That's fantastic.
0: It's very, well, I I can understand why. Um, So you've put together these, these are all original songs, right. Written by you.
1: Yeah. A a lot of them co-written with my sort of um, co-stars and, and, you know, we worked on them over the summer because that's what you have to do when you want music to come out now. You can't just decide, oh, I'm feeling there's a nip in the air. I think I'd like to make some Christmas music. Well, you had to have thought about that when it was really hot if you want it to come out now because it takes a long time to get it all properly made. So I get myself in the Christmas mood in the summertime.
0: That's funny. You deck out the studio just to help psychologically.
1: (laughs) I don't even really do that. I did have like, um, on my desk, I did have like a little snow globe that was a light that it was funny. We were rented this house in the mountains and I just found this globe in the closet. And it was, I was up there to write some Christmas songs and it just happened to be sitting in the closet and I pulled it out. It was, wasn't my house and turned it up. It had a battery in it and everything. And it just makes the whole room look like a disco ball with snow, snowflake lights everywhere. It was pretty, pretty, um,
0: Unusual. It's fantastic. Talk to me a little bit about some of your uh collaborations on this EP. Well,
1: um after the Burt Backrack music came out, I got an email from Rita Wilson, who I had met maybe a decade ago, uh during one day we had written a song together and really hadn't talked to her since. And she just wrote me this email that said I'm just knocked out by this Burt Backrack stuff. I need to know like how this came about and please like talk to me about like what the, what he, what is he like? What's his process like? And, you know, I love the music so much. I love your voice so much. And, and I said, well, I'm going to be in LA next week. And she said, well, you must come and have lunch with Tom and I, we're going to be there. And so I said, okay, you know, um, she says, are there any dietary concerns? And I said, well, it needs to be vegan and gluten-free <laughs> <laughs> Which was where I was at at that point, but um, so we struck up, kind of struck a friendship back up after the Burt thing, and you know, I said, I'm thinking about doing this Christmas project. Would you want to do a song with me? And she was like, Yeah. Well, what are you thinking? And I sent her a little idea that I that I'd come up with over the summer, and she said, I love that. Let's get on Zoom and write it. So she was in Greece, and I was in East Tennessee, and we, you know, we got on the computer like like you and I are, Nick, and. You know, I had my guitar and, you know, and I could see the the Greek uh, aisles in the background out the window and, you know, we wrote this song. And then sort of similarly, Karen Elson uh, lives in the neighborhood. She's a friend and I just think she's a fantastic musician. I love her voice. And and, um, I said, Karen, you got to come over and I've got this idea for us for a Christmas song. And she came right over and immediately picked up on where I was going with it and wrote the second verse. And um, you know, really put it, I was thinking, you know, with all these people, I think about them. And when I'm writing the songs with who I want to, to work with me with Patty Griffin, like she had done a, a sort of a jazzy thing on one of her records, a song called go now that I'd always loved. And and it was like a, a mood that, that she didn't get into very often. And I sent her a text message. I said, would you want to do a, see, I sent, I ask people and to do this this kind of stuff before I before I have the songs, and if they say yes, then that gets me inspired, and I start to think about them, and then I start to write a little bit of an idea.
0: Yeah, well, I, the snow globe world with Patty Griffin is so beautiful. I mean, what a beautiful song and performance, man! I mean, that should become a classic
1: you know you want to this is a tricky thing and i'm glad you said that but you know most people sort of go to it's just like ketchup nick like you know when you want to have ketchup on your french fries you don't want like i mean it, it, it's nice that they're trying to make ketchup but like sir kensington or whatever kind of ketchup that is. it's nice that they're making it out of our hunts it's like no you want Heinz because that's the taste of childhood you know and it's almost similarly uh to christmas music you know when you want to hear christmas music you want the classics because that's what's tied in and connected to the memory so my hope is that you know each generation sort of serves and volleys their their own ideas up and i mean if kids hear these songs then they're going to want to hear them um you know when they're older so um It's never too late to try to write a Christmas classic, except for the fact that it's very hard. It's like trying to invent a new ketchup.
0: Yeah. And you've, I mean, look, you're not walking into this like some uh, naive guy. I mean, it's like you've done about a dozen of these for other artists, right? Yes. Yeah. Prior to this. Yeah. I love
1: doing, I love doing them. Yeah.
0: Have any of those become a little bit more standardized? Have you noticed anything in that, that Repertoire did hear um I do hear pretty
1: often around the holidays, like if you're in the mall or you're in you know Michael's or something like that. I do hear uh baby it's Christmas by by Jesse James Decker quite frequently you know it's one of those um it's not a subtle uh you know thing of beauty, it's just a straight punch you in the throat Christmas song, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, the other one I thought was interesting because you mixed up a lot of stylistically here and you probably, you know, as you mentioned earlier, somewhat based on the people that kind of committed here. But I thought the Santa's Magic Sleigh, you know, with Sarah Buxton was kind of interesting because it's almost like a, some kind of a house chill song. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing, you know, you, you can either, you know, let people in on your process or you can give more of a controlled version of what you do. You know, you can sort of say, and there are situations where you have to be very controlled, but this is sort of one of those ones that I was like, you know, this is my process it's it's random and when i was in the mountains i didn't have anything but this kind of drum machine i had like a drum machine and one keyboard and so that's how the sound of it came out because that's what i had you know and i mean i guess mccartney i was thinking about mccartney because he does he does things that you know have have orchestras on them and then he's got that simply having a wonderful christmas which is like it's got all these drum machines on it and stuff, and he doesn't care. It's fine. It is what it is. You know, um, I don't need to present myself as um, a very um, stylistically disciplined person.
0: Right. And do you, um, let's jump back a minute. Um, as a child, you met a legendary songwriter in this category, so to speak. Uh, do you think something got passed on to you in that that? interaction or meeting
1: no i don't i i i I just didn't even know i'll tell you what got passed on the awareness that that was even a job i mean you know that songwriting was even a job i mean you know i think when my grandmother i think she would have been a songwriter but she grew up in the 30s and you know um you didn't women didn't become songwriters then. i mean there were women um writing songs but it was sort of kind of a a man's job sort of like filling the gas up you know it's like my wife never wants to fill the gas up I don't know why but she considers that to be a man's job and you know I hope that's not um alienating to any listeners but but anyway um it just hadn't occurred to me that that was something you could do and um and it also hadn't occurred to me that anyone even sat down to write rudolph the red-nosed reindeer i thought it just existed as a an account an a factual account of an occurrence you know i didn't i didn't think you you could could even write anything like that and i sort of still feel that way i mean some things are handed down from the gods you know it's from zeus's tablet or whatever you want to make of it but it's like a lot of those early dylan songs or you know, somewhere over the rainbow. I mean, you don't write that, you know, it's like some, I tell people sometimes a crumb falls from God's table.
0: Mm. And the guy we're talking about here is Johnny Marks, um, who wrote some of our, well, for some of us of a certain age, and they're classics now. So everyone, um, some of the greatest uh, legendary Christmas songs of our lifetimes. No doubt. Or anybody's lifetime, right?
1: No doubt. Yeah.
0: I always tell a story. I had a um when I worked at ASCAP before I became an AR man, someone wrote a letter um from Irving Berlin's estate to me on ASCAP stationery as a joke, basically saying that he was granting me a portion of white Christmas. <laughs> he was and I have the <laughs> It's just a funny letter, but it was officially written on ASCAP stationery. And I used to put that up on my door at the record companies when I worked. There. Everyone was like, I cannot believe you own a piece of white Christmas. Everyone believed it. It was the greatest.
1: Man, oh boy, if you did, we, you'd probably be having this conversation. With me from a a boat off the coast of of Crete.
0: Isn't it in a public domain by now or not? I don't think so. Nope. Somebody's still cashing those checks. Yeah, they keep adding that life plus 70 years or whatever it is. So So, uh, is there a song then like from your child or like through your years that like really became the penultimate for you that you think is the greatest Christmas song?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask that because I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's Chestnuts Roasting. Um, you know, I know it's not called chestnuts roasting, but I'll never forget it. It must've been Christmas Eve in Westport, Connecticut. I was about probably about six years old. And, um, there were radios all over my grandparents' house and different, different stereos. I mean, he had a wonderful tube amplifier. He probably got it at the Western auto for like 50 bucks or something, but it was fantastic. (laughs) And Nat King Cole came on and the whole house stopped. And there was, it was kind of, I mean, my grandmother was sort of a bit, A bit of a classical snob. She didn't really, you know, she was riding in the car with me one time. An outcast came on. The only thing she had to say was, (laughs) "Ghastly." But anyway, it stopped everyone in their tracks. And I just remember as a little boy listening to the 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 lyrics of that song and just being like, "Can you hear this?" No, you can't hear it. I know. I don't know why. Oh, I know why. Uh, If you could hear it. Anyway, I won't worry about it right now, but, but um, man, what a song. Yeah, Chestnuts.
0: So fantastic. And based, do you think when you were growing up as a child, you know, because we were, you know, and I'm a little older than you, um, so I was fortunate to have all the Bank and RAS stuff and all the you know, you know, Charlie Brown stuff. I mean, is there anything out of those cartoons that you thought was like really brilliant?
1: Oh, incredible. Vince Guaraldi, unbelievable. Absolutely. No denying. That's, that's it right there. You know, you can listen to that Vince Guaraldi Christmas record. You could probably listen to it 10 times in a row and you would never get fatigued. You would never feel like, Oh God, turn this off. I'm sick of this. I mean, it is so graceful and such elegant music and it's got so much, uh, humanity and beauty to it, you know. I mean, I hired uh, this wonderful um, pianist named Jody Nardone that lives here to um, to teach me chestnuts roasting because I thought I'm going to be at a Christmas party and someone's going to say do a song and that would be the only one I would would want to do. And he said, well, you've got to be able to do it drunk because you're going to be at the party and you're going to be drinking. And I'm going to show you. You're going to practice blindfolded. <laughs> and you're going to. He went through all this stuff and. You know and so i i practiced it and practiced it and practiced it and it was like i started in like august and just was kept practicing it and i was like okay i think i can sure enough i went to a christmas party and had a few drinks and then there was a piano there and the fire was getting low and there were a few people sitting around they said why don't you do a song and i said <laughs> and i got over to the keyboard and i started to play and then a voice came behind me this beautiful voice and I turned around and I said, who is that and it was Michelle Branch and she had started singing along and I thought oh boy this is serious now Michelle Branch is singing along and then I got to the bridge and I missed it <laughs> I missed it I was too drunk I and and she said are you she kind of laughed nervously and she said are you joking right now and I was like I'm sorry I I, I so then I got home and practiced it again. But now I really can do it blindfolded in every way because I had to be embarrassed. I mean, that's the only way you, you sort of learn is, is, is these painful things. you know.
0: So are you up for it this season or not? Absolutely.
1: I've already been practicing. But the problem is no one's invited me anywhere because why would you?
0: <laughs> so let's go back a little bit with your history. Uh, your parents were, a, uh, were artists, um, songwriters and performers. Um, A friend of mine swears that your dad wrote a song with The Remains that he thinks is the greatest song ever written. I don't remember the title of the song, but he was deadly serious. He's serious. He's a serious songwriter, for sure. I mean, they've gotten cuts for a lot of, like, major artists, right? I mean, you know, I think they
1: probably... you know, it's funny. Um one of the biggest songs that my dad wrote was was a was a legal battle, it was one of those kind of like songs mired and mired and legal, you know, legal uh I don't know what do you call it. Um
0: Litigation. Litigation.
1: But um I, I always felt I always felt sad about that for him, but um it was a song called Ooh Las Vegas, um which was recorded by a number of people, but mainly Graham Parsons, but um he just sort of um you know it was a discouraging thing i i remember that whole process and kind of um but you know um i always loved the remains and um and i loved you know growing up and i kind of felt like um you know my dad was was pretty um pretty amazing you know um and my mom too as well you know i remember my mom saying when you can play guitar as well as me, you can have an electric guitar. Because I got an acoustic guitar for my first guitar, it was some little little you know thing you would get a kid like a nylon thing. And I was like, I want I want like a electric guitar, you know. And she said, when you can play as well as me, you can have an electric. And um, but they always um, there were a lot of instruments around. There was like a PA in our garage and a drum set up and. I remember playing the drums on Saturday morning, my dad coming out and going, let me do one thing. He took the cymbals off and put towels over all the drums. He said, okay, carry on. <laughs> um, very, very tolerant, you know, very tolerant of musical uh, exploration and... um you know if i really wanted an instrument and i made enough of a of a fuss about it they would make sure i had it but um yeah very supportive family of of music it's almost as if you know if my parents were plumbers you know i could sort of have an instinctive feeling about plumbing and kind of you know it's it I, it's definitely been an asset for me you know these these concepts aren't strange or or new making albums or recording myself or recording other people or Songwriting, learning songs, tuning strings, changing strings. These are all things that happened in my house.
0: <laughs> right. And were they still touring, like as an act when you were a child, Oh yeah. All the way through. Well, my dad was with Emmy Lou Harris until
1: I was 17. And then they started a folk duo that was on rounder records that they toured while I was in fact, they were on the road, you know, when I was, um, graduated from high school, they weren't there, you know, uh, to my graduation. I mean, music came first, uh, you know, even when my wife and I were going to get married, uh, they were like, well, don't, don't have the wedding on Saturday. Cause we've got a gig, you know, have it on Sunday. So we had, we actually had our wedding on Sunday. So, um, but they're slowing down a little bit. My dad's slowing down definitely, but my mom still gigs quite a bit. And she plays bass in this band that does a lot of Peruvian music and, and, uh, you know, she's just in She's just always doing stuff.
0: What do they think of you? I mean, they think you've learned the guitar well enough. They think you've uh, hit the... Uh, have you hit the bar high enough?
1: Well, I mean, i got a lot of my dad's guitars in here. I mean, you know, um, that yellow that yellow one over there. And I don't know if you can... Yeah. But, yep. uh, you know, I mean, I think they... I think... I, I don't know. It's a mixture of they always sort of expected that I would kind of do something magical and then that they are still sort of um yeah they're impressed but i also think you know um i don't know i think that there was a little bit of um reluctance especially on my dad's part kind of because of his own experiences and kind of knowing how difficult a road it can be and maybe thinking there's a lot of easier easier ways to go but you know, uh, somebody was talking about Nadia Boulanger, the uh, the wonderful composition teacher that was a teacher of Bert's and a teacher of Philip Glass and a teacher of all these wonderful composers. And she used to ask, you know, if you wanted to study with her, she would say, um, well, can you go a day without thinking about music or working on music? And if your answer was yes, she would say, you're cured. Get out of here. You don't need me uh but if you if you said no then then you know and that was me I sort of was in the in the in the latter group where it was just something that no matter what anybody said I I had to find a way to do it so
0: I mean and you went on to be signed as an artist right as solo I mean before Silver Seas right yeah that's right that was that experience
1: well it was really eye-opening uh Nick because um you know, I got to be surrounded by some of my favorite people. I mean, Chris Feinstein, uh, rest in peace, wonderful bass player, and Brad Pemberton, and... uh You know, um, some really good musicians. I mean, Matt Chamberlain, do people who listen to this podcast, do they know like session musicians and stuff?
0: Uh, I think we have a pretty high quantity of like industry folk that listen. So
1: Yeah. Jay Joyce, wonderful guitarist, wonderful musician, just great keyboard player, bass player, everything. He's just awesome. Um, Songwriter. Um, And T-Bone Burnett, of course, you know, it was like it was almost like it was almost like the point of that record was not even the record or even like the songs that I had. It was to just get, like, I feel like that was kind of like my college in a way. Like I got to, got to be around T-Bone and, and sort of like absorb, like how he would look at certain situations and what ones he felt like needed, um, needed him to intervene and what ones to sort of back away from. And, and, and so I was just kind of, I don't know in the back of my mind i think i was thinking this guy's pretty cool i think i might like to do something sort of along those lines maybe at some point so i was sort of watching him but it was also painful because you know he was on such a roll at that point having hits and um i was so much younger than these other artists you know i was like 19 and adam duritz was like in his 30s and writing these really like kind of well, quite deep-sounding lyrics to me now, when I sort of listen to them, I don't know. He's sort of a pop songwriter. I admired Adam Duritz quite a bit, um, and and Jacob Dylan to a degree. I mean, these were projects that sort of bookended my album, and 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 um, I just didn't feel that I had enough experience in my life to kind of like. I just didn't have. I didn't have a whole lot of. I mean, I had cowboy chords and I had a lot of enthusiasm, but I I don't know. It was. I felt a bit fish out of water getting out there to LA and, and the ball was moving quite fast. I felt, and I just was sort of could have used a little more uh, time developing my, my thing, but Mm. how's that answer?
0: That's a great answer. And did you, uh, I mean, what did you get out of it? Did you get one or two records? I mean, did you,
1: well, I mean, you know, I got a pretty good deal for a singer songwriter, but, um, after I made a record, it took a long time and it was quite expensive. And in the end, it didn't do what they wanted to do. And there was a whole regime change at the label. And Bob Krasnow, who had been kind of a fan of mine, was gone. And Sylvia Rohn had come in. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of pressure on the album to be more um grungy because that was what was was quite big and so like things like it was a country rock record i mean bucky baxter played the steel there was steel all over the place don heffington from emmy Lou's band played on it and they made me take all the steel off they were like this sounds like vince gill man you know they 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 made me take all the things out of it that gave it an identity that was interesting and and what it became was this sort of bland grunge rock singer songwriter album and 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 you know you you understand the difficulty that that a and r find themselves in i mean it is a very often thankless and very difficult job being in a and r because um um y- you know you're constantly got one eye sort of cocked on what's working and 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 the other eye cocked on you know the artist and it's very hard to um to be innovative in that in that sphere sometimes and so i didn't have that perspective at all i was just mad. Right.
0: Well, thank you for acknowledging it as a former AR guy because, as I tell people, you don't know how many times I had to quit my job or threaten to because it's really hard to be an artist advocate. And at those times, the organizations of record companies were super large, right? Because of distribution. I mean, you're talking about thousands of people, Mm. you're trying to march in one direction. Um, And I mean, I used to have to, th- I was a young 20-year-old kid who like was so passionate. And so I, you know, I'm just an eye the dialogue. And uh, man, it was a really hard job. You're right. We'll leave it at
1: that. Very hard. I think even harder than being an artist. But I think it's even harder. I mean, to me, it would just
0: be, be very difficult. Yeah. Well, I still see some of my artists say things in interviews that are like, Eh, that's not really true. You know what I mean? It's like, that's not how it went down. Um, I kind of protected you from how it went down, so you don't really know how it went down. Right. So.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting to see that sometimes in the public space. It's like, uh, eh, not right. So... Uh, but anyway, how did, um, so you have the silver seas Did that come right after then, or, or was that something down the road further?
1: Well, you know, um, no, I went to art. I went back home, moved back in with my parents. And then I went to art school for a couple of years and I really sort of put the guitar under the bed for a while. I mean, I kind of, um, it was a bit, I was burned out. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a tough, um, uh, um, it was a tough stretch for me, but you know, sort of a bit like my kind of first glimpse of disappointment in the music industry, which is really important, I think, to kind of wrap your head around, because, you know, if you don't really, if you aren't able to like handle disappointment, that's why I always just sort of wonder what people's lives are like, who, you know, when they, the first thing that they try to do is just a wild success. I mean, I think disappointment is going to rear its head in everyone's life at some point or another. But for me, it kind of, everything was going fine and things just kept getting better and better and better until they didn't. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I got dropped and, you know, I got dropped from my publishing deal and got dropped from everybody. They were just like, no, you're out of here. See ya. And, um, you know, fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience. Um, but I started, I got real depressed and started watching movies all day long and I got a therapist and, um, you know, started, started kind of building my strength back up and got real into photography and then and then slowly like I just I I couldn't really stay away from the music you know I just kind of kept having these little ideas and so I started taking guitar lessons with this guy Justin Thompson and what I realized was there was this whole world of music that like I had not um I had known that it existed like polychords and stuff like that, you know, like chords laid over other, underneath other chords and major seventh chords and minor nine chords and all these things that give, you know, music, this kind of luxurious sound that like, I had just really, it was like a whole new paint box when I started working with this guy, you know, and he was like, yeah, this is going to really going to open up your songwriting. He said it very like offhand handedly, but it really did. And it was like, Whoa! And once I had all these new colors, I I couldn't stop writing songs, and that's when the silver seas started happening. Um, And uh, yeah,
0: I mean, and that's still, I mean, and how did, I mean, how did that project work out for you? I mean, it's still. An ongoing living band?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, right now it's like, a, I mean, we've got a few new songs Jason and I have written, but but what we're working on now is a, sort of a digital box set. You know, we're going to kind of put like a... Everything in one place where it's just all consolidated, something like eight, seven or eight records, and then some demos and some extra songs. And, and we're just going to have it all consolidated because I get messages all the time. All right, where's this thing? I can't find it. And the songs they'll like come up and down on different streaming services and just going to get it all consolidated and, and, and out everywhere. So everybody can find all seven
0: people can find it that want to. Breaking news! I think it's more than seven, but okay, (laughs) whatever you say. I mean, would you tour
1: around that? I mean, it would depend. I'm I'm definitely not opposed to it. I've definitely been you know sitting around the house a little bit. So talk to me. What are we talking about? Where are we going?
0: (laughs) Two hundred dates around the world. So I don't know if I would go that far. So how did like this Nashville path happen for you? And like, how did you kind of? transition into this producing songwriting path in Nashville? Well,
1: when I moved back in with my parents, I read this book called The Art of Record Production, and I can't remember who wrote it, but he was a really nice guy. He had worked with Spandau Ballet, and he was talking about how hard it was to sort of inform the drummer in Spandau Ballet that he he needed some help timing-wise and, you know, things like that, the different problems at producers. But I really got into this book, and I thought, you know, maybe my troubles are that i'm not really a good sort of front man because you know a front man front man needs to kind of have a certain amount of swagger you know and kind of be willing to kind of take on the job of being like a sort of like a mystic a shaman for the whole kind of well really the the ceremony that a live performance kind of is and 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 So I thought maybe my problems are stemming from the fact that my personality is better suited to being kind of more of a behind the scenes type of player. And what would that sort of look like? And then I would see, you know, different people around. So I just started you know, I got one of these digital recorders. I convinced my, my aunt and uncle to buy one for me. It was like $2,000 for eight tracks. And I got this and I put it in my old bedroom that I had when I was a kid and I got a borrowed a microphone from somebody and just started recording, you know, my own songs. Sure. But like those are sort of half-hearted because I was still toying with this idea that I didn't really want to be a front man. And, and, um, a funny thing about that is there was a Lefzitz letter where where he had um encountered one of the Silver Seas songs, and he was basically saying, like, this is a great song, this is a great band, but the guy who's singing is almost like, sounds like he doesn't really want to be a friend. <laughs> front man. <laughs> and I did and and I did not want to be and he was absolutely right although and although it hurt my feelings at the time he hit on something very true which I think makes the Silver Seas a bit unique in the sense is that it, it is true that I'm sort of like kind of singing like I got a bunch of rocks in my mouth and like I just sort of don't really not that I don't want to be there but I'm not going to be there in a in a in a um I'm going to be there in a non-offensive way, which is a really good way to get ignored. You know, um, so anyway, it's just the way I do it. And um, I don't remember what the question was. Well, I'm sorry.
0: So it's going to be the reluctant front man was going to be your next band name. So
1: Well, no, it is true. Yeah, that's it. Um, and I don't really feel that way. But I do think like um, I remember seeing um, I remember Jim Rooney. One time took me to somewhere it was some bar, and there was this woman in Nashville, and she was singing angel from Montgomery and she was going, "Make me an angel a fly from Montgomery just like and he just was wincing, he just went, "Oh God!" he leaned over and he said, "I hate all this emoting and um I realized that there was a style of singing that was very um where the singer wasn't letting the melody and the words do the work, but they were instead feeling that they needed to invest like almost like an, a Hollywood type of performance into the singing. And I just sort of like that was a road that was going this way and I was just going the other way. And I still just just can't stand it when people um like uh tell you the story of the song with their face when they're singing it. They like kind of act it out. Drives me crazy.
0: Oh man. Not a Freddie Mercury fan.
1: Though. Oh no. I'm I, kidding. I, I, I <laughs> I adore, kidding. I adore <laughs> Freddie Mercury. I don't think he struggles. I don't, I, I don't. Um. Yeah. He's, he's in a different category because that's really queen is quite theatrical. So that's something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and
0: how is good point? Like, how did that, like, as you moved into your production duties though, I mean, that's like a really important lesson right there. I mean, how did, has that informed you in, in a lot of cases with some of the people you've worked with?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, people sort of sing the way that they sing, you know, and it's, it's, you can, you can, you can change, you can lead a horse to water and, and sometimes once you get there, you real they realize that they, they, they don't want water. They want Gatorade. And, um, you know, I guess I would, I would sort of have a preference, but if the world was all operating within my sphere of, of, uh, taste, it would be a pretty boring world, you know, because, um, I have the things that I like. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to expand what, uh, what's inside my circle of, of taste and, uh, just, just to, to open myself to, um, up to things, but I still just, I'm like that Heinz ketchup kind of person. I just keep coming back into my things that I, that I like. And I don't know, it's very, it's
0: hard. You know, from what I hear, banana ketchup is really popular around the world. I mean, I've never had it, but uh, careful. Um, so let me ask you, how did like the Burt Bacharach thing kind of come into your life? How did that project initiate? Um, well,
1: I, uh, you know, it's funny. I um remember my grandmother, whose last name, maiden name was Backrack. And I remember hearing raindrops keep falling on my head as a child and thinking, what a song. Now that's something, man. And um just anyone can understand that. A four year old can understand what that song is all about. And, and I just knew what that guy was singing about and what he meant. And and everything about it. And she said, yeah, he's a distant cousin of ours. And, uh, that just stuck in my mind, you know? And as I got older, I got more and more into his music and, and just, he sort of became my, my favorite. Um, and, um, I think it was maybe, you know, in the silver seas times when I started to kind of recognize some of the chords that were happening, um, in my lessons in his music. And, and then when that elvis costello record came out painted from memory man that was a game changer for me that was incredible record um and i just you know i never dreamed that i would sort of get get to do something with him but I wanted to. And what I initially wanted to do was I knew someone that worked in the symphony and I was like, we should get Burt Backrack in here to the, to Nashville to play at our new symphony hall. And we could, I could sort of curate the different singers and we could get a whole catalog together and, you know, and give him a hero's welcome in Nashville. He's never performed here since, you know, I don't know when. And they were like, thanks for your idea, wise guy. We're all good over here. And, uh, and you know, then he magically appears maybe a year later after I suggested that for one night only, it's his only North American date at the Nashville, uh, symphony. So I go to the show, I call him up and I say, Hey, this was my idea. You got to give me some tickets. And they were like, fair enough. We'll give you some tickets. And they gave, gave me and a friend some tickets and we went and we, they had a sitting along a wall. So like if the stage is right in front of you, I was kind of like, sitting like this i don't know why they didn't give me the best tickets in the house but people don't properly appreciate me as much as they should but anyway um and of course it was incredible it was absolutely incredible i mean he came out and the very first thing you heard the lights go down and then then this is what you hear you hear this you hear wait here it goes right here this is what you heard this wonderful minor 9 chord And it's just him at the piano. And uh, man, wow. I just, and I don't know, I, I guess you would sort of feel this way if you were like a kid in Iowa and it's 1965 and you're watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and you just feel this incredible homesick feeling like I just wanted to be. In a room with that guy and talking about music and sharing ideas with him, even though I knew that I had no reason to be there other than he was supposedly a distant cousin. Um, and then a few months later, I kind of put it on a vision board, you know, and then a few months later, this woman that I knew approached me, Melody Federer. She said, I've written some lyrics and Bert's put them to music. Would you want to make a demo? I was like, here's my shot. So I made the demo, sent it to him. He was like, this is terrible. Let me call you. I want to call you and talk to you about this. He called me. He was like, you've got, he's a, you know, you, you missed all the cues on the lead sheet, you know? And, and I was like, I couldn't believe I was talking to, you know, the phone rang and there he was, and I was talking to him and I said, what lead sheet? He said, he said, I sent it to you. I was like, oh yeah, that thing it was like, no, it wasn't that I'm I just couldn't, I just couldn't read any of them, you know? And he said, okay, let me tell you where the dynamics are. You're, you're like coming down in dynamics when you need to be going up. But, but something about me, he just, he thought was, he thought I was okay. So he was like, well, you should come out to the Grammys. And, you know, when I went out to the Grammys, i went to lunch at his house after the day after the grammys he invited me because i think he sort of took me under his wing you know he saw me as like someone who was kind of experiencing you know some of the dizzying heights of where you can kind of get to and he that he had been to you know before and winning album of the year you know i think that was worthy of um being on his calendar for 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 a lunch date so i went and had lunch and Um, I had a little lyric with me and he had put some music to it and it was just, you know, and then we were off and now we're like best friends. He's just the greatest guy ever. He's like, he's like my dad.
0: That's fun. That is such a great story, man. Such a great story. And Nashville symphony beware. Um, but no, it's, it's man, the fact that someone of that stature kind of opened up and kind of let you in mentor as a mentor. I mean, that's fantastic
1: yeah he um you know he well i get it you know this is the thing i think with these people is they want to be understood you know and and I get where he's coming from. I understand why he makes the decisions that he makes. And I understand what he's trying to accomplish. And so I want to be in his life as a vehicle for what he's trying to do. And, you know, you always want that. You always want people to get you and you always want people to help you. Um, and I think he hears something in my voice that um, is a way for me to, project his ideas in a, in a singing way that he likes. And I feel super honored to to be able to do that. And again, it's a non-confrontational voice that I have, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, I love that expression for better. Or for worse.
0: <laughs> and is there more to come from that collaboration? Oh yeah. We got some, Bad
1: A new songs, man. We got two new songs we're working on right now and they're both stunners. Uh, yeah. I mean, we don't do bad songs. I mean, w- there was this one song we worked on called California Light and we worked on it for like a year and we, kn- you know, I was like all about it, but he was like, he could never get it. He could never get it where he felt good about it. So he just scraps it. So if it's not good, he doesn't, he just, he tries, but, but, um,
0: yeah, that's awesome, and so I, I can't leave you without you know talking about one Casey Musgraves. Um, I have to say, when I heard Golden Hour, it is the most sublimely perfect record I may have ever heard in my life. I mean, it it, it moved me emotionally. It, it It immediately made me never stop listening to it. <laughs> i i mean i don't know what you guys did i it is such a masterwork well we had a
1: lot of things going for us you know um we were kind of under the radar we didn't um we didn't have um you know anyone at, 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 in the label capacity kind of with their eye on the marketplace sort of saying you guys are over here and the market's actually over here <laughs> uh you know we just had um uh we had a wonderful studio, Cheryl Crow uh and Sound Emporium here. Um uh Cheryl Crow so graciously uh let us kind of hide out over at her place. Um and you know, um I think um there was definitely a spirit of uh exploration. It was the first major label album that I produced um, or was a producer on. Um there there was um a lot of, I felt a lot of generosity, you know, I felt like, um, I felt generosity was coming to me and I felt like I was feeling very generous with, you know, I had gone through, everybody does, but I'd gone through these phases where I would be like making up an idea and be like, Ooh, this is a really good idea. I've got to save this for silver or I need to save this for, you know, something I don't know. And I just wasn't feeling like hoarder ish about my ideas at all. I was feeling very, um, and I still, you know, do, but, um, so I was feeling very generous with, with my ideas and I felt that the universe was kind of mirroring that back at me in, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and, um, you know, we've all got those records. I mean, you know, for me, like Katie Lang's ingenue, you know, when you said the word sublime, that was the first thing that jumped into my mind was how I felt listening to that record and, and how it still, and has been for decades is in my top five, uh, albums of all time. And just every note on there is so intentional and so elegant and so beautiful. And, you know, I'm a middle-class kid, you know, I, I, I never, I never was, you know, really, I I went to a private school for a minute, but I was never a rich kid, but I know what to me sounds like luxurious and, and sounds elegant. And And I always, always want my music to sound expensive because like music that someone feels is worthy of being invested in, is not something that i've always had um and so um you know strings um reverb that's why i love reverb so much because um one of the things i feel proudest about golden hour was a reverb technique that that i kind of developed um um using compression to to prevent the reverb from happening at the same time as a vocal but happening later and um well I shouldn't say I developed that. I mean it was just something that I kind of learned about and used and is sort of a well it's a it's a a character on that album uh, the reverb um but um yeah, so I'm always trying to make things sound expensive, Nick, and I'm always wanting to to be up there in that rarefied air with those things that meant so much to me uh as
0: a young person so well, you've accomplished um making expensive records then in the good way.
1: Exactly. It's like you do it cheaply, but you try to make it sound expensive because you, you know, you you want it to sound like something. I, I never, I never want to be lo-fi. I mean, I, I, you know, it's like, I want it to sound as, as good as it can. I understand character and character can be quite expensive. You know, just distortion is harmonic and really beautiful. Uh, if
0: used properly, you know, absolutely. It's true. And now you have this uh, star-crossed album released. Um, obviously, there's some confusion um, where it fits in with the Grammys. Um, do you have anything to say about this category confusion? Well, I think it's unfortunate, and I think it's
1: uh, narrow, narrow sight, narrow sighted. Um, you know, you've got um, there's like a, I guess there's like a committee which is sort of a secret committee and you don't really know who's on there and they're, they're, they're taking up matters about uh, eligibility. And, um, you know, I understand um, that, that there are like, you, you don't really want to have, you know, uh, the album in the wrong category, but in this situation, I do think that it, it, it was, um, unfortunate and you know it's something that nashville kind of has a history of doing um you know everybody has a lot of nice things to say about nashville and that's fine and everything but if you sort of look historically you know when you know someone like willie nelson makes something like a redheaded stranger or something like that they're like no man you know uh, eddie rabbit that's 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 what we want and i like eddie rabbit you know but but it's 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 always to kind of like, I mean, I think that someone was afraid that if Casey was in the country category where she belongs, that she would win. And I think that's why uh, she's not in there. Um, and I think that that she really is good, and she really is an innovator. She's from Texas. Every time she opens her mouth, no matter what you, no matter what, it's it's country because it's just who she is. You know, she's a country singer, um, in the sense that it's in the way she makes she forms words, and um, and she really is a great artist and really innovative. And Nashville sort of has a history of kind of mm, let's. Sh- just sort of scooch you over here so we can get these other people. I mean, you know, the people that you're going to see in that category, um, I guarantee you are not as innovative or interesting or really probably as good. Um, and there's a reason because, you know, um, so I do think it's unfortunate and, and, um, I feel sad about it because, Um, I grew up with the Grammys kind of representing excellence and innovation and connection. Um, and you know, it sort of, it makes me sad because I, I, you know, it's like you want to value these institutions and you want to look at them as you really want to believe that they are, um, sort of champions of greatness and champions of artistic, um, Creativity and innovation and and true soul, and when things like this happen um you realize that um, there's some there's there 's a little bit of caveat to to those type of things you know, and I mean
0: you know i guess yeah there's certain categories that they just can 't ever get right, you know what I mean, you know, and whether that 's the politics of a country thing or you know, even like the hard rock or the metal stuff always gets screwed up, right? So there's just these categories where they always misfire. But
1: I mean, I guess let's be honest, it is a little tough to kind of like keep everything in its proper place. I mean, music is 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 always evolving and it's, it's, it's very hard to like, I mean, what a hard job to just keep everything in the proper category. I mean, it's just, you know, Frank Sinatra is like, it's just music. I mean, it's pop you know but what if he's doing you know one for my baby and one for the road it's like that's kind of a country song you know or or what if uh, um you know ray charles is doing a country song or I it's just so hard to like keep everybody in line you know and 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 country is especially kind of um shitty in the sense that it just seems to just kind of reward the wrong type of innovation and sort of, I don't know. We could go on about this forever.
0: Well, you live there. We don't want to get you in too much trouble. And yes, categories suck pretty much, especially when it comes to art. Here's the thing. I mean, I
1: love regional music. Like, I love the fact that when you go to New Orleans, there's this sound that you'll hear on the radio. And this this is regional New Orleans music. I mean, if genres were about a region, like, to me, like, that's that's totally cool. You know, um, I don't, I don't really have anything against genres um, uh, as a way for people to sort of classify things. It's just, um, I, I don't know. I don't like the idea of living in a world where you can't hear like the region that music is from like, um, like Swedish pop music has a certain type of sound that I like, you know, and it's like, okay, that's, that's a Max Martin like sound you know it's swedish it's a sweet sound and it uh or you know east coast rap and west coast rap or or uh you know tribe called quest versus you know uh the things that snoop and, and Dre got uh pioneered in the west coast sound or uh i like hearing those regional differences so maybe they should divide things regionally
0: agreed agreed so let me ask you, after you, you win know, you know, Album of the Year, all that stuff with Golden Hour, I mean, has it changed? Look, it's changed a lot of things, I'm sure. But how you decide on taking a project on, has that changed at all? Or are you just staying on your path? I'm sure you're getting offered more commercial type of artists that are maybe two or three records down the road. Um, how has that changed your view of your career?
1: Well, it's constantly evolving. I mean, there definitely were a few things that came out of the woodwork that, that we got involved in and, um, you know, not everything works, you know, like I that, that that's one of the things that I'm just sort of like was kind of a bit of an eye opener for me was like, I sort of thought, you know, this will give me the cachet that I need and the sort of the trust that I need coming from the business side of things that people will be like, okay, now we're going to trust you to you know give us something that's that we can do something with but what i didn't realize was is that that's totally not the case um and so it's always like a battle to sort of you know um get everybody on the same page in terms of like can we do this? can we do this and this is how i think we should do this but but um I'm definitely pickier, you know, like, um, and I've learned to identify some red flags. Like if, if somebody kind of comes at me and they really kind of want to get a certain kind of sound of something that I've done before, I mean, it, it, it makes you pause, you know, because it's a real easy way to just, just screw up because nobody can, nobody can be Casey. And, um, you know, so you're going to going on a little bit of a wild goose chase. If you're going to try to, to recreate something, or if that's kind of what you got in your mind, I mean, maybe we could use some of the same instrumentation or we could use similar reverb treatments, but then what are we doing? We're just kind of, that's not satisfying. You know, we're not, we're, we're just sort of trying to copy ourselves and nobody, nobody at the end of the day goes home. It's like, yeah, this is a great day at work today. I just tried to copy myself from something I did four years ago. You know, you just don't, you just kind of want to—I um, don't know—you want to work with people that are interested in in exploration and greatness and just kind of you know.
0: So yeah, it has
1: changed a little bit. Um, I, you know. Um,
0: well, you want a career, right? I mean, in the '90s, you know, there were go-to mixers, right? Mm-hmm. We all have. Everyone's using the same mixers, mm-hmm, right? You know, and it only lasts for five years, eight years, maybe. And then kind of it's the end of their careers in a way, because that's over. Um, so you don't want to be put in that box. Well, I might be over. I don't know.
1: I'm just. Uh, <laughs> You're not. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's part of the reason why
0: I just have to keep doing my own
1: projects, because, you know, um, I, I do have a, opinions and I do have perspective. And, you know, I, the, the easiest way to do that is not to sort of impose that on an artist, but just make my own things you know and 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 kind of keep um getting better at at this stuff because there's 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 a lot to learn man there is it is it is hard i really you know i'm amazed at some of the tracks that come out that like there's like three things in them you know like a vocal a bass line and like a, a clap and it's just like wow it, you just did so much with like you know, three objects, you know, it's just incredible. And I don't know really how to do that. I mean, I'm such a layering. Um, I just used so many layers of things that I just, I don't know, it's just amazing to me, but that's what I mean. There's so much to learn and, and, um, um, it's a joy and, a, and an honor and a, and a privilege to be able to do this kind of stuff. And, and it is what I dreamed of. And, it's what i wanted when i was a kid and you know what i what i wanted and i get to kind of have the best of both worlds because you know whenever the 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 world of production becomes frustrating and there's a lot of let's face it you know there's a lot of frustrations you can you can find once you start to involve like you know, big power players in the music industry, and big, big money, and you know the different markets and what they need, and genres, and all that kind of stuff. You get real easy to 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 get yourself frustrated, and so when that happens, it's nice to have um, a world you can go to, which is your own music, and you can sort of do it if you're me the way you you like to do it, you know. And and there's something. Like, I don't know if I would be able to do the production stuff if I didn't do my own music, because I think
0: I would just be like, man, fuck this. This is too hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Daniel, listen, thank you for sharing like the career path, because I always want people to hear that there's no straight lines, no real hockey sticks here. I mean, this is... Uh, this is a path that's got uh, many twists and turns to it and failure to it and trying things i mean that's what it's about um so thank you for sharing that um i always want people to see that it's not a straight line um to success
1: somebody said something one time that like if a song comes out it's a success i think it was rick rubin i think and and you know i mean i don't agree with everything he says but that was one thing he said that I like because, you know, if you just get something out, it's just it's just such a m- miraculous uh, thing because a lot of stuff is just like, I don't know. Do you think I should do you think I should have a Patreon? Because, like, it's not because I want, you know, an extra one hundred and fifty dollars a month or whatever. It's it's because um I like I like helping people with these kind of dilemmas you know
0: i uh listen i have certain patreons i subscribe to and with people that are very generous i mean literally you pay you know a dollar to nine dollars a month and the knowledge you get out of that and the feedback loop is so valuable it goes way beyond yeah, yeah. nine dollars a month yeah, yeah. so i think someone should really be doing that around music most of the ones i have are around finance interesting um It'd be really curious to do some of that around art and, and music. Mm. Well, I, so mm. I support it. Let me know if I can help. (laughs) Um, so the, the, the EP is it's a snow globe world. It's out today and, uh, let's take Christmas even out of the word here. These songs are really, really great songs. Uh, Uh, the performances are fantastic. So
1: thanks man. Um, yeah. Um, you know, the, expect another one, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, it's like I I, I just I keep picking up the bone and gnawing on the Christmas bone. I can't put it down. I just I, I, I'll probably have another one next year. I just love doing these things because, well, one of the things I love about it is you always know when you pick up a guitar to write a Christmas song, what you're doing, you don't have to scratch your head and think, what am I writing a song about? What, are, you know? it you, you know exactly what nouns need to be in there and you know what 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 colors need to be in there it's green and red and gold and silver and white uh and um you know a lot of decisions are already made for you which i love <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you can still push those boundaries, though. That's what's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. You are truly, truly talented. I appreciate the transparency here and you're being so open and generous uh, with sharing kind of your path here. My pleasure. Uh, Stay healthy and happy holidays to you and your family.
1: Okay, you too, Nick. Thanks for having me on,
0: man. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.